0: The reading this morning is taken from Nehemiah, chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanai, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile. And prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who kept his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers your servant is praying before you this day and night. For the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful... I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are in the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed in your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king.
1: I think it was this summer of um, 2002 when I'd uh, finished work and was about to begin theological college. Had a bit of time in my hands and thought what I would do is I would um, build a patio, a few steps, and a nice wall. I'd never done anything like this before, but um, thought I'd give it a crack. Now, uh, Mick Willikan tells me that um, he can do, I think, uh, 250 to 300 bricks in a day. So I guess this should take him a day. Maybe it would take me um, two or three days. Um, Three weeks later, um, I was still still at it. The people of Israel in 445 BC had a slightly bigger wall to build. The wall that surrounded Jerusalem, in case uh, you can't really picture that, I think there's a picture coming up here of what that would have involved, um, right around the whole city, gates all the way around, and the next picture as well, the sort of size and scale that we're talking about, and they completed it in 52 days an amazing feat. And you have to ask yourself, why was it? How could they possibly build that sort of project in that length of time? Now, we're starting a new series in the book of Nehemiah this morning, and uh, I guess those people who are familiar with the book will think, oh yeah, we're doing a building project, therefore we have to be studying Nehemiah. But Nehemiah is not about how you do a building project. It's may have some useful lessons about leadership and teamwork and that sort of thing, about how you face opposition, but that is not really what it's about, because what it's really about is about building a people of God. In the case of Nehemiah and the the people of Israel at that time, rebuilding, restoring a people of God. And the sort of things that we'll be looking at over the course of the, uh, the next few weeks, which will come up on the screen here, will be God's sovereignty, his holiness, his mercy, and his grace. We'll be seeing the, uh, the demonstration of compassion and conviction and courage that uh, Nehemiah exemplified. And we'll be looking at how we can build a prayerful, worshipful, and servant-hearted community. Nehemiah was an incredible leader, he was an incredible man of God, one of the most impressive uh, figures in the, uh, in the Bible. And uh, we may not all be like him, let's face it, we may not all be called to be leaders, But there's certainly a lot we can learn from him in terms of our service to God. Selwyn Hughes says in this little study guide that he's done on the book of Nehemiah, he says this, I "I give you this promise. However effectively you may be serving the Lord now, the study of Nehemiah will help you serve him better. Now, Selwyn Hughes died a few years ago, so I'm not sure you'll be able to keep him to that promise if it doesn't work for you. But um, I'm sure when you come to see him in glory that you'll be able to take it up with him. But I'm sure I would probably um, go along with that promise. How can we serve God better? We study the book of Nehemiah. There's amazing lessons for us. But first of all, a short history lesson, because it's important to understand where this comes in the history of Israel. What are all the events leading up to it? What happens after this? Why did the walls need restoring in the first place? Now, you may recall that after King Solomon's reign, Israel was divided into the northern and southern kingdoms about 930 BC and God sent messengers like prophets like Isaiah like Jeremiah to warn the people of Israel if they persistently disobeyed God then what would happen is they would be taken into exile now that is exactly what happened in 712 BC the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria and later in 587 B.C. Jerusalem was attacked and the people of Judah were taken as captive in Babylon. Now, it must have been an dreadful experience, if you think about it, being a citizen of Jerusalem, uh, seeing your city completely destroyed, the temple, the splendid temple that Solomon built, reduced to ruins, seeing the walls razed to the ground. But whilst they would have realised that God was finally giving them the punishment they deserved, it wasn't all a matter of despair. Because within the warnings of the prophets, there were also messages of hope. i be useful just to turn to Isaiah 45, for example. Isaiah 45 on page 731 of the Church Bibles. <coughs> Isaiah 45:13 says this. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness... I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. And in 539 BC, exactly that happened according to the Lord's promise. Cyrus of Persia sacked Babylon, uh, freed the Jews, and allowed them to return to Jerusalem and their homeland. They tried to rebuild the temple. It wasn't straightforward. It took them 30 years. There was opposition from the Assyrians who'd resettled in their land, but eventually they rebuilt the temple. But even having done that, things weren't brilliant spiritually for the state of Israel, which is why another Jew living in exile called Ezra set off for Jerusalem in 458 BC to re-establish God's law amongst the people living there. And that is a setting for the book of Nehemiah. I think uh, there's a map hopefully should be coming up in case you're the sort of person who likes to visualise all this, where are all these countries that we're talking about. Um, Unfortunately, I haven't got the little uh, clicker thing, but um, you can see, I'm sure you know where Israel or Jerusalem are. If you look to the the northeast there, um, you will see Assyria, slightly in modern-day Iraq, slightly further down is Babylon, and then further over beyond Babylon in modern-day Iran, we see Susa, the city where Nehemiah finds himself at this point. Now, Nehemiah was living quite a comfortable life. He was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. And a cupbearer is more than just a uh, sort of butler. He was um, in a position of considerable authority. He was a very trustworthy position. It didn't, not anybody could have fulfilled that position. After all, he was at times called to test whether the, uh, the cup that the king took had to poison in it. Um, He had confidential relations with the king. It gave him amazing influence. But Lehemiah's life was about to be changed quite radically. What was it that happened to cause this whole chain of events in his life and the people of Israel? It was the arrival in Susa, as we've just read, of one of his brothers, Hanani, together with some other men from Judah. Jews in Jerusalem may be a long way away from Susa, a thousand miles away. Their life may be very different. But Nehemiah has not lost his concern for them. And he takes the opportunity here to find out, well, how are things going in Judah? What's going on there? And unfortunately, the news is not great. Have a look at verse 3 there. This is what they said to me. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. What sort of trouble and disgrace are we talking about here, you may ask? Well, the clue is in the next sentence. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And its gates have been burned with fire. Now, the significance of that news is not just that the city of Jerusalem is not in a great state. It's not going to win the, uh, the best kept city of Asia award this year. Nor even that it was open and vulnerable to, to foreign armies. It's that it represented the spiritual condition of the people living there. And Nehemiah would have been aware that Ezra had gone to, back to Judah 13 years or so ago. But he obviously realised from this news that nothing much had really improved. It was still going on with their old ways. So what does he do? He prays. And in the accounts of his praying here, there are some very important lessons that we can learn from him about prayer. And the first of those is that prayer is prompted by what's on our heart. You know, Nehemiah could have just said, well, you know, I'm really sorry to hear that. Um... And gone back to his work. There's nothing I can do about it. You know, just please send everybody my regards. I hope things improve. But it says here, verse four, for Nehemiah, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And not just for five minutes. It says, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He had a genuine concern for his people although he was far from them he still identified with what they were going through what is it that makes us weep for people I wonder how well we need to know people before we identify with them before we feel concern and compassion for them I'm sure that when things happen to people in our church family we do feel um, deep concern deep compassion for them But as we widen that out how far does that concern go Speaking to somebody yesterday, at the day of prayer, about how much information there is now available about the persecuted church throughout the, throughout the world. And that's great to have. The trouble is, it means that you can read a report about something going on in, in Pakistan or Iran or um, wherever. And our heart goes out to our brothers and sisters in Christ in those countries. It saddens us, but it's almost as though we've become numb to it. There's a sense of powerless. What can we do about it? And a surprising thing in this passage is that what had happened to the Israelites in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day was actually their own fault. You know, they weren't just innocent victims of aggressive nations. They'd allowed themselves to get into this position because of their disobedience to God. God would warn them what would happen if they uh, persisted in rebellion. And I'm sure we can all think of individuals who have messed up their lives. For some people, it will be ourselves. We've messed up our own lives in the past. We can think of people we warned and, uh, you know, don't do this, whatever you do, and yet they messed things up anyway. And you might think, you know, if only they'd taken my advice. But that doesn't stop us weeping for them. You know, 500 years later, Jesus looked to the city of Jerusalem and he wept. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And it's not just individuals, is it? It's just churches. We see churches that were once thriving, and then they take a wrong direction, and uh, things fall apart. And we, we can be filled with some sort of a self-righteousness and say, well, it wouldn't have happened if they'd done what we had said. You know, we can wash our hands of them. Or we can do as Nehemiah did, and we can weep for them. Because at the end of the day, we're just as prone to make those same mistakes as they are. Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, those who think they're righteous, but sinners. Nehemiah wept, he mourned for God's people, and secondly, he prayed for them. It's been said before, but it's um, it's true that our prayer life is a barometer of our spiritual lives. Both our individual's prayer life and uh, our corporate prayer life as a church. The time we spend in prayer, the persistence with which we pray, the issues that we bring to God in prayer, all of those express the the depth of our relationship with God, how much we depend on him, express how much we're concerned about uh, others around us. Genuine prayer can't be manufactured, can't be guilt-induced. It's not about the words we're using when we pray in public. It's about how we pray in our heart to God. We're not saying that we only pray that when we're, we're prompted by a concern, that's the only time we pray, um, that we shouldn't set aside regular times for prayer. But we're not saying that. Because often it's when we have those regular times of prayer and we start praying, that when we've set that side of time for God, it's then that God often puts things in our hearts to pray for. Things that we maybe hadn't thought of until we sat down. But let's ask God that he would fill our hearts with compassion for others. What other lessons can we learn from Nehemiah's prayer here? Well, if we look at the form of Nehemiah's prayer, we can see that he starts with praise. That's what we've been doing this morning in this service. We've been praising God. We've been reminding ourselves of who is the one we've come to. To worship. Who is the one we are addressing here? That is precisely here what Nehemiah does. He says, um, O Lord, Lord Yahweh, the one who has compassion for his people, the one who wants to relate to his people, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, the mighty one, the one who is sovereign over all his world, the one who can achieve his purposes, the covenantal God, the one who keeps his covenants." Of love with those who love him and obey his commands. A faithful God. It's a different love from the, the gen, general love that he has for all those he's made. This is a special love he has for his people who obey him. How does Nehemiah approach this God? Well, he comes to him in humility. He knows that he doesn't have a right to a hearing, but he asks him, Let your Ear, be attentive, your eyes open to hear my prayer. Why? Because he's praying for God's people. And he knows that God loves his people. He knows he will hear for them. Well, having praised God, he moves on to confession. Here, here Nehemiah is throwing himself at God's mercy. Notice he doesn't just pray for those, those other people, those people who've messed up. He includes himself in his prayer as somebody who needs Forgiveness. Look at verse 6 and 7 there. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. The reason that we can approach God in the first place is that our sins have been forgiven. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ as the one who who died in our place, the one who took our punishment for us, then we can approach the throne of God with confidence that we've been made right with him, that he will listen to us because of Jesus. And yet, I wonder when we do pray for others whose lives are in a mess, are we tempted to think, well, we're okay. We've been forgiven. We will never fall away. We will never backslide. We would never make those mistakes. Our faith is strong because we can't afford to do that. Or maybe we dare to approach God with our requests when there is some area of sin in our lives that we haven't really dealt with, we haven't put right. We know it's there, but we've let it go. Do we realise how insulting it is to come to God with our prayers, having not first dealt with those areas in our lives? Prayer includes confession, We come to him in humility. And finally, prayer means asking. Nehemiah has offered his praise to God. He's confessed his sin. He's acknowledged God's mercy. And now he dares to come with his request. And his request is based on an appeal to God's faithfulness, his covenantal promises. He recalls that God has promised in his word that if his people return to him, he will gather them and bring them to the place that he has for them. That is a promise that Nehemiah is calling on. And Nehemiah's request is also based on the fact that he wants to serve God. Just look at the number of times the word servant is used in this prayer. Have a look at verse 10. The people he's praying for, he says, They are your servants and your people, who are you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. He asked God to answer his prayer, not because of what he might get out of it, but because he wants to serve God so he can do God's will. And so when it comes to the actual request in verse 11, it's actually quite brief. He says, give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. Well, who, who is this man he's referring to? Only now does he tell us in one short sentence at the end of the chapter, I was cupbearer to the king. I was cupbearer to the king. Not just any old king, but the most powerful king, in the whole world at that time. King Artaxerxes, the one who'd reigned for 20 years over the whole Persian Empire. And yet, he was just a man. The first mention this powerful king gets is his description as a man. And why is that significant? Because Nehemiah has rightly taken his petition first to the real king, the king of kings, God himself. Compared to God, Artaxerxes is just a man, a man created by God. But notice also from um, verse 1 of chapter 2 that we are now in the month of Nisan, which is four months after the month of Kislev, when Nehemiah first received this news. So this prayer is a culmination of four months of praying, of seeking God's will, of seeking direction, guidance, of trying to ask God, what should I do? Twice as long as it happens, as it would take the people of Israel to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. As we finish the section on prayer, it will be good to remember the importance of waiting when we pray to God. To so not expect an immediate answer to our prayers. Sometimes you will answer them immediately, but sometimes we just have to wait patiently. Prayer is about coming to God in humble dependence, allowing him to work in his timing. And that waiting often serves to increase our dependence on him. Prepare us for what he wants us to do. If you've been waiting a long time for an answer to prayer, then don't be discouraged. Make the most of that time before God calls you to act. It's taken a long time for God to answer our prayers about the building project. But we've learned a lot during that process. And now's the time to act. Nehemiah has mourned, he's fasted, he's prayed, and now he is about to act. God has touched his heart. He's given him compassion for his people. He's caused him to mourn, to fast, and to pray. Nehemiah has made a plan during that time. He knows he's got to go to the king. So what does the success of his plan depend on? Well, it depends on God's grace. God's grace overcoming two major obstacles here. And the first of those obstacles that God's grace has got to overcome in the life of Nehemiah Is his comfort. God's grace overcomes our comfort. Nehemiah was actually leading quite a comfortable life. As we said before, as cupbearer to the king, he carried much influence, he was probably well rewarded. And of all the exiles to go back to Judah, he probably had the most to give up. If he were to go back to Jerusalem, he would have to leave many of his friends, his family. It would be a tough job. Not physically, but also in terms of motivating people, resisting the, the opposition that he would face. And you could say, was it worth the hassle? Why not just um, you know, bury your head in your sand, carry on with what you're doing. After all, you, know, you can still pray for them. The thing is that when God calls people to do tasks like this, the first thing he does is give them a passion for it. And once you have the passion, then all these other obstacles melt away. Something that people mention as an excuse to becoming a Christian is the fear that you know, if they give their whole lives to, to God, somehow he will you know, send them to the remotest part of the world um, where they'll have to spend the rest of their lives in misery. They're just not going to be happy. But what may seem you know, an awful place to someone is a delight to another if God has called them to go there. You think of uh, our missionaries, John and Abby Hunt, living in a part of Nigeria, which uh, is in the middle of uh, some serious violence. Um, Over Christmas, 30 Christians were were killed in attacks. But for them, you ask them what they want you to pray for, and it's not so much about their own physical safety, it's about the fact that if Christians take reprisals against the, the Muslims... That may hinder the work of the gospel. That's what's driving them, the work of the gospel. They've been given a passion to serve God in that country. This is there something God has given you a passion for? But maybe you've held back a bit because of your comfort. Maybe it would mean giving up your time to serve in an area of Christian ministry. Maybe it would be giving up some of your money to give to a cause for which you have concern. Maybe it's to move job or home, but... It would just be too much to contemplate. We need the gracious hand of God to overcome our comfort. But also, finally, to overcome our fear. Unsurprisingly, Nehemiah is pretty afraid of asking the king for permission to leave. After all, we know from the book of Ezra that was a group who had already tried to do the same thing and the king put a stop to their plans. And not only that, it was quite dangerous. Apparently, if uh, somebody appeared sad before the king and downcast... It could be taken as a sign of displeasure with the king and could be punished with death. And so as Nehemiah goes into the king's presence, we're told here in verse 2, he was very much afraid. We're in chapter 2 now. He was very much afraid, but God gives him the boldness to tell the king what he feels where his true loyalty lies, what he wants to do. And then there's that moment you can picture of deathly silence. He said what he wants to say. And what is the king going to say? Well, amazingly, what the king does is he asks him, what is it you want? What is it you want? So Nehemiah shoots up another prayer. I'm sure you've been in that situation before. You're in that difficult situation. You don't know quite what to say. So you ask God, please just give me the words to say here. And he basically says, I want you to let me go. A bit like Moses to Pharaoh sometime earlier, only hundreds of years earlier, and we know what Pharaoh said to Moses. But even more amazing, the king replies, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? And by now, Nehemiah's on a bit of a roll. You know, if you look into chapter 2 now, and he even dares to ask for a load of other things. He's saying, while you're there, I could do with some safe conduct letters. I could do with some free timber. You know, but this is not a spare of the moment stuff. This is the last few months planning what he would do if the king were to grant his request. And now he has. And in this brief moment, he's gone from being a cupbearer to the king of Persia to a leader of God's people. Reminds me of uh, when Liz and I decided to take a year out after we were married and go and explore the possibility of, of missionary work in South America. And I went to my boss, full of uh, trepidation, uh, thinking he would be very dismissive, tell me what I, was, what I was thinking about. But I also went to him, having prayed very hard about it. And to my complete surprise, he, he said, well, when are you going to be back? You know, we'll keep your job open for you if you like. And... Um, While you're there, we'll um, keep your bonus for you that uh, you should have had while you're away. Those are the days, eh? Um, But it's moments like that. You're going and expecting, there's no way that this is going to happen or turn out how I want it to. And God just surprises us. And why is it? It's verse 8 there of chapter 2. Verse 8 of chapter 2. Because the gracious hand of my God was upon me the king granted my requests. We can come up with all sorts of clever words and uh, strategies to achieve what we think is right, but at the end of the day, unless the gracious hand of God is upon us, we will get nowhere. And if, on the other hand, we call upon the gracious hand of the Lord to answer our prayers, it is possible to change the minds of the most stubborn of people, the most scary of people, to open doors that appear locked and bolted, to move mountains because by praying we're calling on the power of the almighty God who's sovereign over the universe that he created and if it's really his will he will open the doors Proverb 21 as I finish says this the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord he directs it like a watercourse, wherever he pleases
0: how great is our God